Hi, I'm Elise Dayeem, Director of the Fellows Program at New America. This year, we're thrilled to support 15 new Class of 2022 National Fellows as they develop their ambitious projects. Today, I'm joined by Francesca Marie, a Class of 2022 National Fellow. Francesca is writing a book about the financialization of housing by charting the consequences among neighbors on a single block in Northwest Pasadena. As a freelance journalist, she has written features about housing, con men, and abuses of power for The New Yorker, The New York Times Magazine, The Atlantic, and others. From 2016 to 2018, she was a senior editor at the California Sunday Magazine, and before that, she was a writer and editor at Texas Monthly. Congratulations, Francesca, on your acceptance this year. So to start, can you tell me more about your fellowship project and what you're hoping to do with the project this year? Thanks so much. Absolutely. So I'm working on a narrative book project about the financialization of housing, which is a totally garbage term, but uh, I've yet to find a better one that's succinct. Um, And what I mean by the financialization of housing is how housing has been transformed into a premier investment vehicle and why it is the preferred investment vehicle of the world's wealthiest. So housing we know has has long been a primary way for the middle class to build equity, but that is becoming harder and harder for the middle class to do. And part of the reason is because of how housing has been financialized. And that's one of the greatest drivers of inequality today. And I don't feel like we as a society fully understand how we've gotten there. And so that's kind of like the high level idea behind the project. But I'm telling this story through the narratives of several families on a single block in gentrifying Northwest Pasadena, whose stories represent different financial forces uh, that are operating on all of us. So there's a foreclosure lawyer who houses an entire family experiencing homelessness. There's a foreclosed property that has been acquired by a major developer and flipper that employs people experiencing homelessness to guard their properties from other people experiencing homelessness. There's a home owned by uh, Invitation Homes, which is the largest corporate single-family rental home company in the U.S., and and various other other homes. But I'm following the intersecting narratives of of people who have been marginalized by the financialization of housing. I know this is requiring a book-length treatment to discuss this, but can you give us a brief history of why housing became a commodity and viewed in this way, as you say, and I guess just maybe highlight a few milestones or what, what are some of those milestones that kind of got us to where we are today? Yeah, it's such a great question. And I think one of the things I'm, I'm looking forward to working on this year is, is how to tell this history in a way that is riveting and clear. So several things have happened to make housing a great and reliable investment for those who can afford it. One of them is the securitization of debt. So we heard a lot about this in 2008. It's like kind of opaque and really hard to understand in part because 
people who make money off of this want it to be hard to understand. So securitization is not in and of itself bad. It was what enabled the 30-year mortgage, um, which is something that only originated after the Great Depression. And the 30-year mortgage extended credit to people who otherwise wouldn't be able to buy a house because previously home loans were five to 10 years. You were only paying interest on them. And at the end of the five or 10 years, the lump sum was due. So you had to be wealthy to, to buy housing, essentially. So the 30-year mortgage allowed the middle class to buy homes and it extended home ownership, which was fantastic. And it did that because the banks were allowed to bundle their debt and sell it on a secondary market, the securities market. Then what happened is we got a greater deal of people were able to purchase homes. Many of those people became home voters. So that's a term that the Harvard economist William Fisher has, has coined. And it describes someone who is trying to protect the interest in their home. And home voters typically vote more conservatively. They vote to protect their property values at all costs. So Often what you see with a home voter is uh, votes for restrictive zoning, um, for keeping tax dollars within a certain locality, for incorporation of, you know, like LA is a famous example where uh, we think of LA as, as one city, but it's actually 88 different little cities because everybody's incorporated to create their own fiefdom to have land use control. And so a place like L.A. that was zoned for 10 million people in 1960s is now zoned for 4 million. And so the effect of the home voter and bad public policy is restrictive zoning that creates false scarcity in cities. And so we see this we see this often in the most like ostensibly liberal places. There's this real hypocrisy of progressivism in you know, we see it in the Bay Area. Honestly, LA is is worse than the Bay Area at this point in terms of their sort of voting for single family homes. But so restrictive zoning is kind of one element of what has gotten us there because by making homes hard to buy or by making by limiting construction and growth, those properties become more valuable and ensure in certain investments. So when a home is a good investment, it's going to attract people beyond homeowners, of course. And then the third kind of important milestone is what happened in the 1980s when the securities market for housing debt became privatized. And that's sort of the subject of uh, Michael Lewis's Liar's Poker and is known but sort of widely forgotten. So the securities market became privatized. Also, there was neoliberal deregulation that allowed any global investor to buy shares of investment portfolios. So we saw the, the rise of real estate investment trusts. And that just meant that investors were further severed from their investment. So it allowed anyone to buy a piece of real estate as though it were a share. So it just it, it opened the floodgates to 
outside investment and made those transactions more seamless. You you no longer had to be a landlord or a property manager to invest in real estate. And then, of course, the financial crisis brought things to head by showing what could happen when these financial markets go unregulated, because so many of them are subterranean. They're regulated by the players in them. The government has very little oversight over what's happening. There was an abuse of credit lending and people were targeted for subprime loans that it was clear that people were not going to be able to afford and maintain. But this was premised on the idea that housing values would just go up and up and up. And that didn't happen because so many people were given loans who shouldn't have been given loans. And that was driven by how lucrative investing in mortgage debt had become. So when I'm talking about the financialization of housing, I'm I'm talking about the ways in which new financial instruments have been created for investors, not people like you and me, not people who invest in, in real estate investment trusts even, but, you know, financiers to buy the debt of the middle class and make a a lot of money off of it. It's a very deep history for sure. And in, and it's clear in your response why this needs a book length treatment, right? So I'm curious about, you know, why Northwest Pasadena, California, why that location is really the place for you to tell the story? Oh, that is a great question. Part of it is, is incidental. I was reporting on the rise of private equity backed single rent, single family rental home companies for the New York Times Magazine. And in working on that story, I actually fully reported an entirely different story than the one that I ended up telling in my magazine piece, in part because the person I was following struck an amazing deal with the company and actually prevailed and signed an NDA. And even though all of my reporting prior to the NDA was kosher to use, until that settlement had been signed, done, and executed and financed, I didn't want to write that story and potentially jeopardize anybody involved. But through that story, the lawyer involved in that story is a foreclosure attorney who had graduated from MIT, was an economist who was mentoring many of the students, largely a Black and Latino community. Um, and he kept noticing that those students were, were moving away, that their families were being evicted or losing their homes. And this was before 2006. And he decided at the age of 40 to become a foreclosure attorney, to go back to school, to save people's homes. And when he got his license as a lawyer, it was right as uh, the housing market was imploding. And so he couldn't have been more valuable. But he then introduced me to this block where I just saw all of the predatory financial forces that I was interested in operating. So Pasadena, you know, it's it's just outside LA and, and you know, no one thinks of Pasadena as, as the center of the housing crisis, but LA very much so they, they recognize as such. And it just seemed that the best place to tell this story is is in the LA metro because LA has the highest cost of living relative to income in the United States and is such a haven for investors. And weirdly, we think of LA as a place with 
lots of single family housing. And in fact, that is indeed true. What's bizarre is that for a place with so many single family homes, it has the lowest homeownership rate of any major metro. So many of those homes are owned by investors and rented out. So California, you know, is one of the places experiencing the worst in terms of housing crisis, in part because there's so many high-income jobs there. Uh, It's also a place that suffers from terrible restrictive zoning, and it's emblematic of a certain hypocrisy in progressive politics. Um, So for all of those reasons, one being just the random coincidence of where reporting leads you, um, another being sort of the sheer facts about a place, and another being the way in which looking at California, an ostensibly progressive place, can illuminate issues that are rampant in, in, in far less progressive places. Is All of those factors sort of led to me very much thinking that California and this very small block in, in northwest Pasadena was the best place uh, for me to tell my story. So you noted in some of your previous work that there isn't necessarily a housing shortage in America, but rather housing has drifted further out of reach for many Americans. Why is that the case? And can you also even talk about the pandemic and how that might have exacerbated that issue? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I can't remember what I was thinking when I said that there wasn't a housing shortage in the United States. But if I had to speculate on what I was trying to say there is that when we're talking about lack of housing, uh, it, it doesn't make sense to look just at national stats. We have to look at stats, the stats of the places with jobs. So there are lots of rural places that may have derelict housing that's, that's falling apart or not, but that doesn't, that doesn't really count in our in our count. The places we need to look at and the places that need to be densified are the places that offer employment. So the Bay Area, New York, you know, LA, Boston, Seattle, and so on. Uh, Boulder, Austin, you could go on and on. Um, but in these places, there's a real I like to say that we don't have a housing crisis, but a housing supply crisis, because I like to shift the emphasis onto the lack of necessary construction. The way to make housing a worse investment for predatory investors is to build more of it. It's just a simple fact. And and I think that gets lost in a lot of conversations over housing. Recently, there's been a lot of discussion about the impact of um, corporate landlords, and that industry often says, you know, hey, we only own 2% of housing stock. We don't have an impact on the market. Like, that's absurd. But the truth is, they have been very selective in the markets that they have chosen. And so Invitation Homes, the largest of them, which owns 80,000 homes, has selected you know, 17 markets, those homes are concentrated in very specific neighborhoods in those markets. And so in those neighborhoods, they do have oligopolistic power. And so they do have an impact on the market. Um, And I mentioned this in part because I I think 
it could not be overlooked. They are also the players, corporate landlords, who have issued the greatest number of evictions during the pandemic. So I think there was a congressional hearing just the other day, and it was highlighted that corporate landlords had issued more than 75,000 evictions, which is huge. Um, in terms of the pandemic, I'm working, I'm finishing up a magazine story right now. Um, I'm looking at the impact that the pandemic has had on real estate. So at the beginning of the pandemic, no one knew what was going to happen to home values. And, you know, a lot of real estate agents freaked out. They thought that their industry was dead. They thought that they weren't going to make any money that year. Um, in June or July, I asked former HUD Secretary Julian Castro what he thought would happen to housing values. And he said, well, obviously they're going to go down. Um, at that same time, I had asked the CEO of Property Radar, which is a service that offers information on home values to investors, what he thought would happen. And he said, well, you know, a lot of people after being cooped up in their homes for months are going to realize that they either hate their house or they hate their spouse and they're going to want to sell. And, you know, he, I've got to say, like, he was more on the money than Castro and so we saw, you know, people wanting more space as remote work became more popular and, and proven to be efficient. We saw there, there, I think, I believe there probably has been an increase in the number of separations, but more importantly, uh, interest rates fell to historic lows. And so homes became very attractive. And in 2020, for the first time, millennials represented more than half of all mortgage origination. So there had long been this narrative that millennials didn't want housing. They're, you know, they're these free-spirited people who just want to rent and work all over the world. Well, that always struck me as a bunch of bullshit. As a millennial myself who always wanted to get into housing, uh, or always wanted to own my own home more than more than anything else, but couldn't because I was always living in places where I couldn't afford to do so until just recently. That always struck me as false. And in fact, we're seeing that that is false, that millennials are starting to buy into the housing market. They're driving up prices. Anytime you have low interest rates, that means that people qualify for greater credit. That means that home prices are driven up. We saw housing up, you know, more than 20% uh, and like as much as 150% in certain neighborhoods in desirable places. The only places that haven't seen an increase are New York and San Francisco. Even LA has seen an increase. Austin and Boise and Phoenix and Boulder and Seattle are just skyrocketing and places like Austin, you know, are seeing homes in the $300,000 range in November sell for $400,000 by January. So just in a matter of three months, things are, things are, you know, appreciating so greatly and homes are getting 96 offers and, and so on. And that now, for the first time in a year, is starting to plateau. But what we're seeing 
is that things are plateauing at a new high. I don't see that going down because millennials are going to continue to buy for the next, you know, 10 years. Research has shown that it's getting increasingly more difficult for adults to own homes. Um, I believe there was a study in 2019 that showed only 4% of millennials own any real estate. And so I'm curious if you can talk more about that trend, why it's significant, and what can be potentially done to reverse it. I'm so glad you asked because I'm obsessed with that stat. So baby boomers with a median age of 35 owned a third of America's real estate equity in 1990. By 2019, a similarly sized cohort of millennials age 31, so just a a little bit younger, owned just 4% of America's real estate equity. So that is a huge shift that shows the way in which housing has become increasingly out of reach for younger people. How do we how do we fix this? Man, it is a tough question, but one of the key ways to to fix things is to change public policy. So we need to enable construction of housing. That's how you make housing a less lucrative investment. You know, restrictive zoning and keeping housing scarce increases property values for those who already own property. Another thing that we need to do is crack down on the financial instruments that certain elite investors are using to mine housing for money and profit. So, you know, who is benefiting by the corporate acquisition of housing by private equity firms? Certainly not people who rent from those places because those places are maximizing rental income, and are creating new types of financial instruments to profit off the debt on their housing acquisitions, and they're selling shares of their company on the market. So any kind of corporate acquisition of housing is removing housing that entry-level buyers might acquire. And so that needs to be regulated and looked at and highlighted. So it's very clear from the response to several of the questions I've asked you earlier that the housing issue today is very complex and it's really difficult to even navigate your way through it as a reader, let alone someone who wants to own a home. But somehow your writing has resonated well with broad audiences. Uh, One of your 2020 articles on the legacy of racist housing policies was very well reviewed. And so I'm curious about your writing style. What helps you write in a way that is accessible to a broad audience when it comes to a topic that is so complex? But also what responses have you received from readers and what stands out to you? Thanks. So... One thing that I try to do is is to tell the story from a human level. And in the case of the New Yorker story that you're referring to, it's funny. I'll start here. There are two ways to kind of come upon a story idea. One is top down and one is bottom up. So sometimes you want to talk about a subject and then you look for the person or the narrative that might be emblematic of that issue. So that was true of when I was writing about the rise of the private equity-backed single-family rental home company. When I wrote this New Yorker story about 
um, a house sitter experiencing homelessness um, being sort of exploited by a ginormous flipping company in California, that was one of these bottom-up stories where I was doing some other reporting, knocked on a window and met Augustus Evans, who became the subject of the New Yorker story. And through him, I learned about this weird phenomenon of employing, well, employing, I'm using this term loosely because technically these guys aren't employed at all. They're sort of just paid under the table, but paying people who are experiencing homelessness under the table to guard properties from others like themselves. Um, and I didn't know when I was pitching that story that that, that story would become a story of the racial inequities in, in housing. But as I continued to report and saw who these homeless house sitters were, I saw that all of them, and I, I interviewed, you know, more than half a dozen um, in person and, and more than that by phone, uh, were black. And many of them had lived in the areas that they were now guarding on behalf of investors. So their families had lost homes in those areas or they had been priced out of those areas and become homeless. Um, and so as I kind of dug further and further, I saw how this one very bizarre story was actually emblematic of larger forces operating uh, in Los Angeles and throughout the country. So as you embark on your fellowship project this year, where do you hope to be with the book a year from now? Well, I hope to have written a good amount of it. And what is so wonderful about this fellowship and what I'm so enormously grateful for is that it will enable me to go out to Los Angeles from January of 2022 through August uh, to continue to report uh, on my block and to really be there for uh, an uninterrupted stretch of time, which will be incredible. I've been following these families since 2019 on and off. And with this fellowship, I hope to complete all of the reporting for the book, um, but also to have written kind of everything that I've reported up to now. Um, so I imagine that might be the book. So <laughs> I'm probably jinxing myself, but I'm really excited to dig in and, and move forward. Well, we're thrilled to support you this year and to see your project take shape. Thank you for your time today, Francesca. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please visit newamerica.org fellows to access my other interviews with the class of 2022.